0: We're in uh, Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. Mark 9, 14 through 29, um, page 844 and 845 in your Bibles if, if you want to follow along um, there. Christmas, two weeks ago, we were in the previous chapter. We were up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, right? With this great high, this great revelation of Jesus temporarily, of His great glory and His glory. Great power to three of the disciples. Well, our passage this morning is what happens immediately after they come down off the mountain. Today, right? It's the first Sunday of the new year, 2014. Melissa is glad she hates odd numbers, um, so she's excited. I'm glad now because she's been rubbing off on me, and now I hate odd numbers. Um, So we're excited to be in an even number year. But this is the time, right, when when everyone makes all these grand, sweeping, big. New Year's resolutions, as, as Edwin mentioned, right? I'm going to stop smoking, or I don't smoke, that's just an example. I'm going to lose weight, I'm going to get out of debt, I'm going to read the Bible more, pray more, be nicer, whatever it is. At this time of year, everyone is, is like, this is it, this is going to be different, this is going to be my year, I'm, I'm going to do all these great changes. Uh, for about the last 10 years, I've resolved to, to work out more and get on get in shape and then put on some good weight. And, It just hasn't happened. So, um, but because if you think about it, big, grand, sweeping resolutions rarely stick, and they often cause lead to no change because resolutions, by nature, are always about our resolve and our our personal willpower and our own power and ability to succeed and accomplish. But well, let's be honest, right? It's, It's January 5th, right? Many of you have already failed. I'm going to eat just a little bit less chocolate or cupcakes or something, and then you know you're already eating those things, right? We, we've already failed on some of our resolutions, right? It, this morning, what I want to do as we start a new year, I want us to look at this passage. You know, this is just the next passage; and it lines up perfectly, and I want us to draw two things from it that I want us, kind of as a church corporately together, to, to commit to doing this year, because the disciples are about to show us kind of a good example why most resolutions fail. Because we're about to see the disciples fail miserably. Because they're going to attempt to do something by themselves. They're going to attempt to do something on their own power. And they're going to fail miserably. And that is why we so often fail as well. But after they fail, we're also going to see Jesus show us the the solution. He's, He's going to give us the answer. And what we're, to, what we're going to see is faith and prayer, quite simply, are the two things we're going to look at in this passage. The first part is about faith, and in the end, kind of links prayer in together with faith. Right? So that's what I want to do this morning, We see these two things and draw some things for our upcoming year um, from, from that. So, look down there in Mark chapter 9, uh, verses 14 through 29, um, page 844. I'll follow along as I read. This is God's Word. And help us. And Jesus said to him, "If you can, all things are possible for one who believes." Immediately the father and the child cried out and said, "I believe. Help my unbelief." And when Jesus saw that the crowd began running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, "You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again." And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, the disciples asked him privately,
1: Why could we not cast it out?
0: And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Let's, let's turn to the Lord in prayer as we begin. Father, we thank you um, for this day. Uh, we thank you for the rain. Uh, we thank you for a warm, kind of warm, uh, dry place to, to gather together and to worship and to celebrate um, the, the cross, uh, we pray right now um, that you would focus our minds and our hearts on your word. Father, speak to us um, through it. Father, speak through me. I pray that you would apply these truths to my life, and pray that you apply these truths to all of our lives, and we would we would understand faith um, better um, from this. We would leave this place worshiping and glorifying you, and better relying on on you. So we pray that in this time um, that you would work, and that you would get all to glory. We pray this. In Amen. So, last time, Mount of Transfiguration. Remember, only the, only three of the twelve disciples were, were taken up on the mountain. Right? So Jesus, James, Peter, and John are coming back down the mountain. Right? They're coming off of the high of the transfiguration, the, the brief unveiling of Jesus' great glory and power. And they go straight from the high of the mountain to the low of the valley. And they go from the great light of the revelation of Jesus to the darkness of dispute and demonic activity. Mark doesn't give us kind of a ton of detail of what's been happening kind of with the nine while the others were away. But but based on the context and based on what we know about the scribes, it's it's pretty easy to piece together what has been happening. And arguments broken out between the scribes and between the nine disciples that were left behind. Jesus shows up and says, Hey, you know, what's all the fuss about? What's going on? And in verse 17, the desperate father shows up. He, he says, I, I brought my son to you. Uh, you weren't here. So I'll give him to your disciples. Maybe, maybe they can take care of it. And it says, and they could not do it. So do you see what all the commotion is about, right? There's a bunch of people around, including the scribes. And we've, we've met the scribes a number of times already. Remember, the scribes have made it their job to discredit Jesus and his followers. And many now, very publicly, the nine followers of Jesus have failed miserably. Right? So I guarantee you that the scribes were having a field day with this. Right? They, were, they were ridiculing them and mocking them. They were in a very difficult and embarrassing spot, and they were helpless to do anything about it. And everyone was watching. They had tried, and they had failed to do it. Have you ever been publicly embarrassed like this? It, it, it's the worst. There is no worse feeling in the world than complete helplessness and failure in front of your peers. In college, I was a good student at the end of college, not so good at the beginning. Right? There was one occasion where I had like a presentation, something in front of the whole class, and I just did not prepare for it. Freshman year, it wasn't my best year. And so I got up there unprepared and the professor realized pretty quickly that I was unprepared. And he made sure made it perfectly evident to everyone else in the 400 person room or whatever it was that I was unprepared and it was awful. Right? It's just terrible feeling of helplessness and embarrassment, right? That is what has happened here with the nun, right? They have been humbled humble, mightily and the scribes were loving every minute of it and not letting them hear the end of it. As I mentioned uh, at the beginning, we were on vacation last week drove down to visit family in North Carolina, last chance to travel before the baby comes. Um, Now, I've only lived in New York City about a year and a half, so I don't know if I'm allowed to do this, but I truly consider myself a New Yorker. I don't know if I count yet, um, but I consider myself one because I I bought it. This is the greatest place in the world. I don't want to be anywhere else. But last Sunday night, we drove out to Melissa's dad's house. You you met him a couple weeks ago he was here, and this guy, he just lives in the middle of of nowhere. Right, just giant field, woods, no lights, no civilization. It is the it's the anti New York City. Right, and so we forgot something in the car. Melissa sent me out. I went up to get it, and for some reason I looked up, and while I was and, and while I did, I was just I was I was dumbfounded. I was dumbfounded by the stars. Right, I was absolutely blown away. I had forgotten about the stars down in North Carolina. There, were, there had to be thousands of them. Now you can see the Milky Way. They were just everywhere. And I just stood there and looked at them for a long time. Now, I love this city. I wouldn't trade it for anything. But one of the things that we give up to live in this great city is we give up the stars. And that kind of got me thinking a little bit I was about how God operates. Because think about it. The stars down in North Carolina are right, the exact same stars that are up here in New York. I right? asked some astronomy for you, right? They're, they're the same stars. But we, um, they're, they're different, and we can't really see them up here. Why is that? Because of light, because of our man-made light that, that, that drowned them out. Right? We have all these great lights, Times Square, the Empire state, Building, lights are just everywhere. I love flying it at night and just seeing the city all lit up. Um, you can stand in the middle of Times Square at two or three in the morning in the darkest um, point of the night and not seeing a single star because of all of the big, giant, flashing lights around you that drown out these significantly more impressive lights that are farther off. But do you think about it? Come on. Which light is more impressive? Is it the, the 20-foot neon billboard or, or the North Star, Polaris, which is a hundred times bigger and brighter than our sun? Right? Obviously the North Star is, is much more impressive, but we get so caught up in and distracted, and they get blocked out by our tiny little man-made lights that we can't even see those lights. But, in the middle of nowhere, in the black darkness of night, the North Star and the thousands of these other stars shine forth brilliantly and much more beautifully than anything that we can create. So what's happened? Our success... Our greatness, our light down here that we have created, is blocking us and preventing us here in New York City from seeing the great, far superior lights up there in the sky. It's only when we get away from our light and our greatness that we can see these great lights and in the blackness, in the dark of night. It takes the darkness, it takes the black, for us to be able to appreciate those great lights. Right? and this is why God sends us quite frequently situations of darkness, like he sends the disciples and his father in our passage today. Right? Because we're gonna see next week that the disciples were they're apparently getting they're getting pretty confident in themselves. These guys are starting to get a little bit cocky. They're, they're, they're feeling pretty good. They're with Jesus. They just went on a successful preaching ministry, they've been casting out demons over and over again. Jesus has just told him that he's the one, he's the Messiah. Now they're the twelve with the Messiah. They've got to be feeling pretty good. Next week, our passage is an argument between the disciples about which one of them is greater than all the other ones. right? So these guys are feeling pretty good. They're, they're, they're full of themselves. Lots of greatness, lots of success, lots of man-made light. And all that man-made light is obstructing their view of the far more important light of Jesus Christ. So here in our passage this morning, God graciously sends them some darkness. Right? He, he brings them back down to earth. He, he knocks them down in peg by giving them a situation that they could not handle in front of a crowd of people that would witness their failure. For the very purpose of extinguishing their light just a little bit so that His light could better shine forth. I mean, this is how God works for all of us. This is why He purposely and kindly sends us trials and difficulties and darkness to extinguish our lights a little bit so that we can actually see His. Sometimes it takes failure and weakness to force our selfish focus off of ourselves and put it back on God. And that's what He's doing here for the disciples in allowing them to fail. And that's what he will do for every single one of us in here at some point in time. For our sake, God makes sure to send us things that remind us that we aren't that great and that we cannot do it on our own. He he humbles us so that we'll be forced to stop relying on ourselves and start relying on him. Because that's ultimately what faith is. And that's what Mark wants us to learn from this passage. To focus not on our own light, but on the far late, far greater, superior light of God. Look at verse 19. Look at Jesus' response um, to all this. He shows up, he sees all this, he says, Oh faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? And this is just this is a statement of complete exasperation and frustration. And notice again the thing. Notice why he is frustrated. He's so frustrated with them because they are faithless. And he, he's talking to everyone here, I think. He's talking to the scribes. He's talking to the nine. He's talking to the crowd. And he's talking to the Father. And they all are lacking faith to some degree in this story. And thus, here we are again, For the, who knows how many times in Mark already. We're, we're back at faith. Mark, keep bringing up faith so we're going to keep addressing it. It's one of the key themes of the book and it is one of the most important and most misunderstood doctrines of Christianity. Faith, which is belief. Remember way back we talked about this, how the words are the same. It's the same Greek word in the Bible. Faith and belief are used interchangeably. They, They mean the exact same thing. And quite simply, they mean trust. Faith and belief both mean trust. So biblical saving faith is trust in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. That is what everyone in this situation to some degree lacked. They failed to trust God. They failed to trust Jesus. And we see this most clearly at the center of the story. The focus of this whole story revolves around this conversation between Jesus and His Father. Right, like a good doctor, Jesus asks him a few questions. Right, like Jesus always does, he never asks because he lacks information or he needs to be informed. Right? he asks for the sake of the Father. Right? he asks not to learn; he asks to teach. So he says, "How long? You know, how long has your son been like this?" And the father replies in verse twenty-two. Notice what he says here. He says, "From childhood." And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Ooh, trouble, right? That's a dangerous little two-letter word to use with Jesus. If you can do this, Jesus, help us out. And Jesus picks right up on you. Look at what Jesus says in response. He says, if you can, you're saying to me, if you can? And just in case you're following along in the King James, notice that it translates that phrase very differently. And while largely it's a fantastic translation, they, they get the Greek wrong here, and it, it changes the entire tone of the conversation. Right, in verse 23 in the King James, Jesus answers the Father and it says, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. Right? There's a problem with that. First of all, that first believe, if thou can believe, it's just not there in the Greek. Right, that word's not there. That was was added in way later, and the King James includes it. So so it's not original, but the major problem is theological, because that translation of it entirely alters what Jesus is saying. It it turns a call of Jesus to trust Him and believe Him, to have faith in Him, and it turns that call into moralism. It turns it into a command for the Father to do something, and in the very next verse, he is about to admit that he cannot do it, Right? He's about to say that he has very little faith. But in the, in the King James, it's saying, Jesus is just saying, oh, we'll just have more of them. Just, just build up or, or kind of stir up more faith. But listen, that's not the gospel. That is the prosperity gospel. Right? Well, you didn't get a miracle? Well, just you just need to have a little bit more faith. And then, and then God will give you whatever you want. Right? Just, just have more faith and God will bless you. Right? But listen, that's just that's that's not biblical. And that's the exact opposite of the point of this passage. Jesus says, not if you can believe, right? That belief's not there. He says, if you can, he says, you're saying to me, Jesus Christ, if you can, you're challenging me. And then he says something that has been terribly misunderstood and terribly abused throughout the history of the church, especially these last hundred years. He says, all things are possible for one who believes. What does that mean? Is this a blanket, universal promise that whatever we believe can and will happen? Come on, right? It's obviously not, alright? All we have to do is apply a little common sense to what Jesus is saying and read it in the context of what's happened, Right? Does that saying mean that if you just believe hard enough, You'll win the lottery. Obviously not. does it mean that if you just have enough faith that you can fly through the air, right? Obviously not. As cool as that would be, we obviously can't do that. Doesn't mean that if you just believe enough, you won't have cancer or you won't experience any trials or sufferings or difficulties. Obviously not, because that's not what Jesus is promising. You. Just believe, and you can have whatever you want. That's again not the gospel. That is the prosperity gospel, which is not the gospel at all. Did Paul not have enough faith in 2 Corinthians 12, when he begged God over and over again to remove the thorn in the flesh that was formerly Of course not. Right? Jesus, did Jesus not have enough faith in the garden of Gethsemane in Mark 14, when he begs God, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. God doesn't remove it. Was it because Jesus didn't believe enough? Of course not. Because nowhere are we promised in Scripture that we'll get whatever we want if we just believe. So, what is Jesus saying? He's not saying that faith can accomplish anything that we want, but that those who have faith will set no limits to the power of God. God can do whatever He wants. We cannot do whatever we want, but He can. And through faith, we have access to that power. Faith is the the power cord that connects us to the immeasurable power and goodness of God. Faith teaches us to pray and to seek things according to not our own will and desire, but according to God's. And when we pray... That way, in the name of Jesus, and according to the will of God, then all things truly are possible. So, our desires are our will, all things are not possible. Right? As much as I believe it or pray, I cannot become Superman or something. Right? Our will, our desires, all things not possible. Right? God's desires and God's will, all things are absolutely possible for one who And not our desires and wishes, God's desires and wishes. And that's what prayer is. Lining up our will and our desire with His. Look down there at verse 24. And look at the Father's beautiful um, response to this. This is, I think, maybe my favorite prayer in Scripture. And it's quite honestly, it's the one that I have probably prayed um, the most myself. And, uh, the, Jesus says to the, this man, you know, all things are possible if you believe it. He cries out. Some manuscripts add, in tears, he cries out. He says, I believe. Help my own belief. I believe. Help my own belief. Listen to, what, um, to John Calvin, the, the great theologian of the Reformation. Listen to what he says about this, about this prayer. He says, the man declares that he believes, and yet acknowledges himself to have unbelief. These two statements appear to contradict each other, but there is none of us that does not experience both of them in himself. Our faith is never perfect, so it follows that we are all partly unbelievers. But God forgives us and exercises such forbearance towards us as to reckon us believers on account of a small portion of faith. He says, as sinners we are all partly unbelievers. Our, our faith, no matter how big, is always mixed with or take to some degree by doubt and sin and questions. So, so what I want us to do is this, this prayer of this man, I hope as it is to me, will be a great encouragement to you. Because don't we all feel this way sometimes? Don't we all feel this way maybe uh, more than we would like to admit? Yes, I believe, but it's so weak. It's so small. Help me God in my unbelief. God, give me more faith. This should be a regular prayer for all of us. Because this is a gospel prayer. This is a prayer that recognizes how weak we are, how small our faith is, and how dependent we are on God. True faith is always aware how small and how inadequate it is. Listen, I'm much more concerned if you come to me and talk to me about how great and big and strong and perfect your faith is. I'm going to start to say, like, oh, well, let's, let's, let's talk about that a little bit. But you come to me and say, you know, I have got faith is weak and small and strong, we can work with that. Right? That I, I can relate to, and that I am understand. Right? In the midst of these struggles and doubts, these, this darkness that God sometimes brings into our life, what happens is we kind of we, we turn in. Right? We start to, to focus on ourselves and focus on our own faith. We, we start to analyze it and, and pick it apart and scrutinize it. Is, it. is it big enough? Is it strong enough? But once we have started to do this, we, we've already lost it. Right? We're, we're already doing it wrong. Now I think this is one of the greatest tricks that the enemy uses to, to get at us. He tries to show us how sinful, how full of doubt we are, how prone we are to wander how small and weak and insufficient our faith is. And that is a very effective strategy if we do not understand the gospel. But if we do, in in light of the gospel, it actually turns out that Satan is telling us something that we need to hear. God had this amazing way of taking taking what what Satan intends for evil and shaping it and using it for good, as we see in the story of Joseph. So we start to listen to ourselves and the lies, and we think, man, my faith isn't good enough. It isn't strong enough. It's weak. But that is exactly what Jesus is trying to get his forefather and all of us to see through this account. That truth is a key part of the gospel message, right? The weakness and insufficiency of our faith, right? You see, because what's happened is many Christians have taken faith, and they have tragically made it into a work, right? Faith is the thing that you do to impress God and earn His favor, right? It is some quality that you possess, something that you do, you build it, you grow it, it's your thing, Right, you do it. Some people have, have more than others because they're smarter or more privileged or because they, they made the right decision, got a better education, they have more faith. So so God rewards that faith. God's grace that is contingent on the will of man. Something that we do or choose or whatever. Right? That, that's making faith into a work. But listen, that's simply not what faith is according to the Bible. And this passage will not allow such a definition of faith. The father cries out to Jesus and says, help me, give me more faith. And by doing so, he demonstrates that he has a better, more biblical understanding of faith than many Christians do today. I'm just going to read you a few verses and then let God's word speak for itself here. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, quite simply, not sure how people miss this. It says that your, your faith is a gift from God. Not a result of works. Not something you get. Your faith is a gift from God so that no man may boast. God gives. He, he gives to you your faith. You didn't create it. You didn't come up with it. You don't get credit for it. Hebrews 12.2 says that Jesus is the author of our faith. What is an author? An author is the one who creates the story. He's the one who, who writes the the story and brings it to life. Right? Jesus is the one who writes and creates our faith. Romans 12.3 says that God has assigned to each a measure of faith. In the Greek, that word assigned means to distribute, to deal, to, to, to hand out or to give. Right? God gives to us faith. Again, some out there they are going to tell you that your faith and your salvation depends on, on something that you Do on the will of man, but Romans 9:16 says quite clearly. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. That's what grace is. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And the Father gets that. Help my unbelief. I cannot do it. Jesus, come in and assist me and help me. Give me more. Give me grace change my heart, save me, and save my son. And that is true biblical faith. It is throwing ourselves at the mercy and grace of God. It is coming to the end of ourselves and realizing and resting and relying solely on Him. That is what faith is.
1: If you are in any way
0: trusting in yourself, in your goodness, or resting in something that you did, you've missed it. Because faith is relying completely on something that he did for us. Which one are you doing? Remember the distinction we've been making. Religion is about what you do to earn God's favor. The gospel is about what God has done for you through Jesus Christ to give you God's favor, even when you did not deserve it. The the, the disciples' failure here and, and the father's desperation illustrates quite well the importance of faith. Of trusting in God If you don't have faith We all fail like the disciples But with the father You're just small, little, weak faith Then all things are possible And that's what we see in verse 26 Jesus responds Jesus rebukes the demon He casts it out He heals the boy And restores it to his father Weak, small faith Can have miraculous results Because again Think back about a month or so ago Remember what we talked about. It's not about the faith. It's not the size of the faith that matters. It is the object of that faith. Remember, it's not about your faith. It's the object of your faith.
1: Faith cannot and
0: it does not save you. God does by His grace. By grace you have been saved. Through faith. The grace saves you, saves you. The faith is simply the, the instrument, the means through which God applies it to you. Faith is like the power cord that connects to the battery. Right? The power cord doesn't have any energy or power within itself. It simply connects to the source of the power, the battery. And the cord simply transfers that power. That's what faith is. It is the, the God-given gift by which He connects us to His grace and His power. All right, so, so that's the thing. That's the focus of the first part of the passage. We, we spent a long time there, but let me hit the second point for just a second here right, as we close up on prayer. Right, if you look at the last few verses of the passage, right, the story shifts scenes completely. Now it says, Just Jesus alone in a house with his disciples. And they ask him. They, they come to him and say, What happened They say, Why couldn't we cast him out. Right? They, they have done this many times before. And Jesus replies in verse 29, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Again, the fasting, if you're following along with the translation, uh, it's not there in the Greek. Uh, Jesus says, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And you, you'll start to notice the disciples' problem if you look back at their question. Why could not we not cast it out? Uh, you see that? The implication of this whole account and Jesus' answer is that they were relying on their own power for success. And they were not relying on God, which is made very clear by their failure to pray. Because that's what prayer is. If if faith is trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, if it is relying completely on Him and not on ourselves, it is then implicitly an acknowledgement that we are helpless and can can do nothing on our own power. Well, prayer is an expression of faith. Prayer is a direct at-working of faith. So prayer in itself is also an acknowledgement that we can do nothing on our own. Prayer is an acknowledgement that in and of ourselves we can do absolutely nothing apart from God. God must show up and God must act. The Lord in His great power and grace must show up and act on our behalf. Right, just by the very act of prayer, you are admitting your need for Him to show up and work for you. Prayer is inherently admitting our helplessness and throwing ourselves at the feet of God. In dependence entirely on Him. And that's what the nine disciples had failed to right, do. Their, their previous success had gone to their head. Right, they had cast out so many demons before that it had become old hat to them. So they started relying the on their own ability. They failed to even pray to God when they were confronting this, this terribly evil spiritual force. And they couldn't cast it out because they trusted in themselves and not in God's power, which will lead to failure every time. All right, one of the most important themes to draw um, from this passage, I think, for us and for me, it is the inadequacy of the disciples and their ministry. The inadequacy of the disciples in their ministry. Right? Discipleship, service, ministry with Christ, it should always be characterized by constant awareness of the inadequacy of the service. Right? Jesus frequently calls his followers to task beyond their abilities. And the fact that the tasks so often surpass our abilities, as it does for the 90s, is evidence that the ministry is not theirs, that this ministry is not mine, but it is Christ's. And this is where I want to caution myself and all of us as we head into the year 2014. Because, listen, quite honestly, this is a good thing to admit. 2013 was a great year, right? Many good things were accomplished in Woodside Community Church this year. Right, people are coming back, our attendance numbers are up, giving us up. We're in a good spot financially. In just the last few weeks, six new members have joined us, with, with more to come shortly. We had the, the distinct privilege of seeing Jen and another Jen baptized up here two weeks ago. That is, that is a blessing and a privilege. Right? We're not just growing bigger numerically, but we're growing more mature spiritually. There's there's hunger for the Word. There's a desire and a growing love of the Gospel. Wednesday night prayer attendance is, is way up. Oh, the worship team is doing an amazing job. But the choir is getting better and better. I could go on and on and on, but 2013 was a really good year at Woodside Community Church. And as we as we stand here at the beginning of the new year, I, I definitely have a few Concerns. Because I, I can feel it within myself. Right? I'm pushing it down. And I'm hiding it. it. It's back there. But I can feel it kind of growing and building. This, this this growing sense of pride and accomplishment. Look at what we have done. Look at what we have built. Right? If we just keep this up, we can do anything. Right? Maybe we'll have all these satellite campuses. And we'll just grow and grow and grow. Bigger, bigger buildings. We can do all these things because all these good things are happening. We can do it. My wife, Melissa, will be the first to tell you that I can be an arrogant and prideful person. Right? My sister-in-law case here. She can corroborate that for you if you would like. Right? One of my constant struggles is that I feel way more highly about myself than I should. Right? And as with the disciples, and in this passage this morning, success can sometimes magnify that tendency and make that, that tendency towards pride and, and accomplishment even worse. So what I mean, and what I think would be good for all of us as we start the new year, is to let this passage be an important warning for us. To let this passage set the tone for the rest of the year. To let this passage determine our New Year's resolutions as a church. Because I want the two main points from this passage to be the two things that we resolve to focus on this year together as a church. I've mentioned to you before the man named Jonathan Edwards, right? A couple hundred years ago, greatest American theologian who ever lived. Um, He's he famous for a number of things, but one of them is he, he, all these resolutions that he made when he was younger. Not going to lose weight, going to get out of debt, but spiritual resolutions. All about prayer and service and his relationship with the Lord. All, they're, they're amazing, and they're, they're intimidating if you go and read them. But he opens up his resolutions by saying this. He writes, Being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help. I do humbly entreat Him by His grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to His will for Christ's sake. And that is exactly what our passage has been about. And that is exactly what I want us to focus on this year. The recognition repeated, and I need this reminder that we are unable to do anything without God's help. I want us to make a renewed commitment to Biblical faith rely completely on the power of God for everything that we do in this place. God is the one who gives the growth. God is the one who builds His church. Not me, not BJ, not the trustees, not the choir, not any of us. It is God who gives the growth. Right? To, to succeed, we need to constantly be reminding ourselves of our weakness and our helplessness and our complete dependence on the grace of God. And secondly, my desire for us is that we recommit ourselves to being a people of prayer.
1: Because prayer
0: is the necessary expression of faith. Right? And, you know, if you're wondering about your, your personal life, your walk with the Lord, look at your prayer life. Right? Check out how that's going. Right? In the private of your room, when you're by yourself, what's your prayer life Prayer is evidence of our faith. Prayer is acknowledging our weakness and asking God to step in and work on our behalf. We will not succeed in this place without prayer. And listen, not just prayer to get things that we want, but prayer that acknowledges the supremacy and the sovereignty of God and that confesses our sin and our weakness and relies totally on Him. Faith and prayer. That is how we will succeed at Woodside Community Church in 2014. And that is how any of us will succeed personally. Not prayer like how most of us pray. Okay, this is just a little side note, right? The vast majority of Christian prayers amount to give me this, do this for me, make this easier for me, take care of this problem, be me, with me, 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 right? It, it sounds a whole lot like my kingdom come, my will be done, rather than thy kingdom come, thy will be done. But listen, the main point of prayer is not to get what we want, right? The main point of prayer is to to center ourselves on God. The point of prayer is to make Him central and the focus of our lives. And prayer is one of the primary tools that God gives us to do that. Prayer is not about getting things. It is about God. It is about getting closer to Him and orienting ourselves and our entire lives around Him. And this is the type of prayer that I desire for all of us this year. The gospel is that God has taken the initiative. He has shown up Himself to take care of our problem that we created and that we can do nothing about ourselves. Our sin and our separation from Him. So Jesus comes. He lives and He dies and He comes back to life and He does all of that in our place. He does it for us. He does all of the work. And that's what grace is. It is is a gift. It is Jesus coming in and saving us from ourselves. From sin and from death and from separation from God. And then restoring us and reconciling us and returning us back to God. That's what salvation is. That's what grace is. The gospel is that God has done this for us in Jesus Christ. Faith is simply the God-given gift by which we access that. And prayer is the daily acknowledgement and reminder of of depending on that grace. So so my prayer for us this year is that we would be all about those two things in this place. Faith and prayer, quite simple. Trusting not in ourselves, not in our own abilities, not in my ability, preach, not on the worship ability to lead worship, not on our ability to advertise or bring people in the doors, none of those things. Not on our own abilities, but relying solely on the grace and the mercy of God. It is there, and it is only there at the feet of the cross, dependent on the grace of God, that we will find any success in this place in this year. All right? let's, let's turn to the Lord and ask Him for these things in prayer as, as we close. Father, we thank you uh, for giving us your word. We thank you for including it in it passages like this that, that can remind us of our dependence on you. Father, thank you for sending the disciples this, this very embarrassing and humbling experience so that we can learn from it. Father, thank you for, uh, as hard as it is and as, and as little as we like, and thank you for giving us situations where you remind us that we're not so great, uh, we're not so smart, and we're not that big of a deal. But Father, we thank you that you are. We, we, we confess our tendency to rely on ourselves. I confess my, my tendency to feel pretty good about myself and my abilities. Father, I pray that you would remind us that you are the only good one. You are the only great one. And that our life and our salvation and our success in this place depends entirely on you. So, Father, grant us faith. Father, we believe and we ask and we beg that you would help our unbelief. Father, draw us closer to Your Son. Make us more like Him. Just give us a desire in our heart um, for Your Word. We um, pray that we would we would know it and we would speak it and we would pray it um, in this place um, every time we, we gather together. Father, we thank You that You are a God who, who pursues sinners. We thank You that You are a God who saves us even when we reject You and, and run from You. So, Father, we thank You for Your grace. We thank You for Jesus. And this us as we as we um, embark in this new year, Father, I pray that we would embark... On it, completely dependent on your grace and on your power for whatever we do in this place. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.